Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. On today's episode, Darian Lockett is back and we talk all things Catholic epistles, talk about their theology, how they fit together, and how to read them better. And there's nobody better to talk to about this than Darian, so hope you enjoy our conversation. We are brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. Go to csbible.com to find out more about this English Bible translation. You can also check out the new volume in the Christian Standard Commentary Series from Patrick Schreiner on Acts. And now, my conversation with Darian Lockett. But first, no big deal. Darian Lockett. Darian, this is uh, your second time on Church Grammar. It's been so long, you may have forgotten the first time, but you were the, I think, the fifth episode I ever recorded at, uh, at ETS. Uh, so it's good to finally have you back after after all these years. Yeah, well, that's ancient history now, right? So that's true. Yeah. We were still working on the CSB together. There's all kinds of stuff going on then. Oh, yeah, that was good fun. That was good fun. I enjoyed that conversation. Good to be back. Yeah. Um, so what we're going to talk about today is your uh, new book, Letters for the Church, reading James, 1st, 2nd Peter, 1st, 3rd John, and Jude as canon. So um, I hate to say this. I'm sure you know this better than I do, but I feel like you are the Catholic epistles authority uh, in our circles. I'm sure there's somebody that's more than that. But when I think of Catholic epistles, I think of Darian Lockett. So, Well, there are five of us who are interested in these texts uh, professionally. And uh, among that five, uh, I don't know, I'm the third voice there, second voice there. <laughs> there are a small group of us that are very interested in these texts. Well, you're number one in my heart, Darian. So, so for what that for what that counts for. Well, that makes my day. <laughs> All right. So one of the things that you do really, I think, is really interesting in Catholic epistles is that you not have found a way. Because I don't mean to sound pejorative, but you you just do a great job of saying how do these things fit together. Um, and that's how the early church thought about it. That's how they were grouped. They've been in collections together, you know, as long as we basically have record. Um, and yet a lot of people treat them very differently and, and uh, you know, for obvious reasons, there's different purposes, there's different authors and all that kind of stuff. So uh, in your tagline on the book or your subtitle on the book, you say treat, uh, reading them as canon. So maybe just start there, just kind of launch into this kind of big idea of the canonical reading and what you're doing there. Yeah, what's interesting for me, uh, you know, and, 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 and for others, I think there's a growing group of folks who are interested in the fact of or the reality of canon um, and how that is both a, a description of the historical development of the New Testament canon. So there's a historical story of how these 27 particular texts came into the New Testament, you know, historically. Uh, but I, uh, kind of following especially Brevard Childs, uh, I'm like noticing the hermeneutical implications of canon as well. So um, not only canon, not only is describing, you know, how these texts came to be collected together, uh, but once they are collected together or as they're being collected together in the early church, what, uh, what influence does the canon have on how we read these texts? So namely, the collection, right? So number one, there is a definitive collection. There are 27 texts, not 28. There's 27 texts, not, you know, 15. Uh, so there's a, a collection uh, within which we read these texts. Uh, and then within that collection, there are associations 
among particular texts. So the four Gospels, Pauline, Canon, uh, Acts, Revelation, and then Catholic epistles. Uh, and as you just mentioned, I'm looking at the early canonical development uh, of the fourfold gospel, Paul's collection, and and these other texts. What are they? Well, they're James through Jude. And what what were they called early on? Well, early on, they were called Catholic epistles. One one of the first things I do in the intro is to describe that term, Catholic epistles. Um, so, in scholarship. Often these letters, again, James through Jude, are called general letters or Catholic epistles, and that's a genre distinction. That's a way of describing a certain kind of letter. Paul's letters are specific letters written to specific churches or specific people. Think, you know, church at Corinth or um, uh, Titus or Timothy. Uh, the Catholic epistles are mostly written to a general audience. And that's what general letter or Catholic epistle as a genre designation in scholarship usually means, that these are letters with a broad address. But what's interesting, if you look at 2nd John, 3rd John, if you look at the circumstances of Jude, they're not general letters. They actually are written to very specific situations. So rather than a genre distinction in the early church, I think, and others have argued this as well, Rob Wall, Dave Neenhaus, um, that that description, Catholic epistle, is not a genre description. It's not an adjective. Uh, it's actually a proper noun. It's a label. It's a name, kind of like the Gospels, fourfold gospel, or the Pauline collection. So Catholic epistle is, I think, less an adjective and more a proper noun, describing a collection of early Christian letters uh, that the early church received uh, into the canon, not one by one. So that's another part of that interesting historical story of the early development of New Testament canon. Texts didn't come into the New Testament one by one, like, you know, Matthew comes in or uh, John comes in. Rather, the fourfold gospel comes into the New Testament collection uh, at the same time. And uh, early churches were reading the fourfold gospel together. Same with Paul's letters. You know, there are different versions, 10, 7, 10, 14 letters. You know, there's some development there. But the Catholic epistles as well. So uh, those are the kinds of interesting early church um, indications that I'm trying to read the Catholic epistles within, thinking about how those seven letters uh, were read as a collection and received as a collection early uh, in the Christian church. And, and then like, you know, from there, what implications might that have for us as we read today? So this is a bit long-winded, but that's yeah. that's getting at, you know, kind of the context in which I'm thinking about these uh, seven letters. Oh, that's good. That's helpful. So um, one of the things you bring up early in the book, right in the introduction, you talk about how you have these New Testament letters that are concerned with both uh, orthodoxy and moral living. Uh, and you met, you've mentioned before, actually, this idea of, a, of an apostolic theology or just sort of thinking about how the church is starting to work out these issues. So if you could give uh, a handful of kind of big picture things that tie these books together, what are some big things that you would say, this is what the Catholic epistles are contributing? 
Well, yeah, very generally, uh, other texts in the New Testament are obviously interested in both theology and ethics. You see that, you know, just even how Paul's letters can be divided on the theological, here's what we believe, and then the ethical, here's how we should live, uh, kind of emphases, you know, think of Romans or Ephesians. Um, but the Catholic epistles are particularly interested in this issue of how faith and works are uh, connected, integrally connected in uh, the life of a Christian. Uh, so James, 1 Peter, 1 John have this issue front and center. And you, you can begin to see how letters that are written by different early Christians, you know, James, Peter, and John, uh, share really similar central concerns uh, for the outworking of faith uh, in in life. Now, I, I don't want to pit that against Paul, nor pit that against kind of a Reformation idea of, of um, thinking about justification and sanctification in particular ways. I think that's very helpful to, at least heuristically, maybe in the classroom, you know, maybe at a moment of just pulling them apart so we can look at them very carefully, justification, sanctification. Uh, but when you read, especially James, you know, First Peter and First John, uh, justification and sanctification are two sides of one coin. They're mm -hmm. very much connected to each other. And that's really in the Christian life how, how we live. Uh, we live out justification in our sanctification, but those two things aren't separate from each other. And so that that's a clear emphasis uh, running through the Catholic epistles. The other thing you mentioned there, like an apostolic theology, I haven't worked this all out in detail in my mind, but I'm really interested in how the Catholic epistles are kind of similar to the pastoral epistles in that it's a moment in the church as the church is growing um, so in the pastorals, you see kind of church organization, some structure, offices. I mean, again, debatable how full and formal are those offices. But you see mm -hmm. a church needing structure uh, to maintain right teaching and right living. Um, similarly, you know, in Second uh, Peter, in Jude, um, in First John, you have this concern to combat false teaching and false living. So Second Peter, there's wrong Christology, wrong eschatology that's influencing people in how they live, right? If Jesus is not coming back, if he is not indeed the judge of the living, then we can live however we want, and there are implications. Uh, Jude, a group of you know people have snuck into a Christian community all the way to the point that they're celebrating Eucharist, right? Having Lord's Supper with these people, but they're living in an immoral way and their immoral lifestyle is now influencing others. The implications of how leaders act uh, in the community uh, affects affects how Christians are living. And in 1 John, there's a whole fracture, right? There's a group of people who have left leaving the faith as well as leaving the community. And that has upset the you know community and now John is saying look we need to be very careful about how those people influence us so anyway mm -hmm. there's a concern and and alongside that there's a concern for apostolic theology so first John uh, 1 1 through 4 uh, the we language there is the apostolic we and uh, there's a Christology that's being communicated in that we language and that Christology is not just stuffy theology it is uh, what animates right living or living that pleases God, living that nourishes a community and love for each other and love for those around them. 
Um, you know, same thing is happening in Second Peter there. Uh, the author of Second Peter is arguing, hey, there's, I'm communicating the apostolic message here. Um, and we need to believe the right things that come from this apostolic message because that flows out into a right way of, of living. So, yeah, there, there's more there in that apostolic uh, message. I'm um, kind of getting ahead of myself here uh, into an, another you know, research project. But I, I think if you read underneath the surface or read carefully in the Catholic epistles, you can kind of see creedal elements or statements mm-hmm. of faith that are suggestive of a early apostolic theology in my argument, that would stand right next to Paul, doesn't mm-hmm. need to be in conflict with Paul. Um, I, I was just chatting with a, a good friend, uh, uh, Miriam uh, Kovalesian at uh, Regent University. Anyway, she, uh, she, or Regent Seminary, she was talking about um, kind of like an expanded vocabulary uh, mm-hmm. that the Catholic epistles give us alongside of Paul. We, we have uh, the theological and kind of ethical language of Paul, but, but we need more. And so the Catholic epistle standing right next to Paul uh, is a helpful thing. And so anyway, uh, reading the Catholic epistles together, it, it helps us see something of a, an apostolic uh, uh, voice, an apostolic set of teachings that um, bolster the church against, you know, error and yeah. encourage the church to right living. Yeah, you know, I know. I know. First John two nineteen is is one of my favorite passages for you Presbyterians who uh, used to be Baptists. You know, the, they went out from us because they were not one of us. You know, so I always have to remember that. I know that's in the first century, but I feel like those were the early Presbyterians who left the Baptist world. And so. I came on here thinking I would have a nice chat with a friend, <laughs> and you and you pull that out. You just called me like apostate. I mean, oh, we, I didn't use the word. You did, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't make fun of Kansas basketball because you guys won the championship. So I've got to do this. We believe the same gospel and, you know, you're all for church retrieval. So mm. why don't you retrieve some, you know, infant baptism stuff here, man? That's true. Well, yeah. I mean, it was invented 500 years later, but we can still, we can oh. still hang on to it. So. Yeah. Well, um, at, least, okay. at least you're marking up the Jayhawks for me. <laughs> well, yeah, you guys have a, I can't make fun of Kansas for basketball right now. So that's all I got. So. Uh, no, but I, I, I think, you know, the interesting thing you bring up there, though, is uh, you brought it up a little bit earlier, too, of this idea of how we read the Catholic epistles in light of other books. So when you start thinking about the fact that if you're just reading in your Bible reading plan and you go through all of Paul's letters and then you start reading these Catholic epistles, uh, you brought it up a little bit, this idea that, like, you're almost importing Pauline categories into them. Yeah. Because you've already been, you've been so, I mean, you've had, th- what, 13 books to, to, to give you this sort of uh, similar language and similar argument. So what would you say, um, you know, this expanded vocabulary you brought up, what do, you, what do you think the Catholic epistles are doing to bolster or clarify or expand on some of that language? And how, how does reading them next to Paul impact that? Yeah, great set of questions. Uh, I think about methodology uh, first and maybe to my detriment, but... Like one thing that re- runs through my mind as I want to answer your question is that um, we hold in some degree of creative tension reading um, ancient authors' intentions, right? Reading James on James's own terms, reading First Peter on his own terms, reading Paul on his own terms, and understanding how Paul is using particular language like righteousness or faith, uh, but reading James and understanding how he uses justification 
uh, or law or word in his own kind of context. Um, that's a really important moment in interpreting and reading scripture well, um, because I don't want to import Paul's use of law as I'm reading James's use of law. We're, we're going to get in trouble there, or I want to appreciate how Paul uses the word uh, uh, justification or to justify the verb and, and James's use. At the same time, though, as a Christian, as one who not only historically thinks about canon and the interrelationships between the 27 texts of the New Testament canon, and with that also the text of the Old Testament canon, um, uh, not just historically, but as a Christian, I, I am duty-bound to understand that these texts have come together and the historical author isn't the only one communicating in these texts. So I fly off into deep theology here, just arguing that God himself is speaking in these texts. And so, whereas I want to distinguish how Paul is using law and James is using law, I also want to read those texts together as if they are in conversation with each other. Um, and, and that can happen on two levels. Number one, I could think about how James and Peter, James the letter and first Peter the letter, though written by different people, and I don't think James and Peter necessarily are talking to each other directly in their two texts, uh, but as they're read together or next to each other in the canon now, there are a ton of interesting connections uh, in their vocabulary, in their concepts, even in the order in which they uh, present some of their ideas. And canonically, you can read those together, mutually interpretive, helping us understand um, something about the people of God, Jew, Gentile, James, First Peter, uh, about eschatology, uh, about uh, about apostolic theology. But then, like you said, yeah, I think it's important to um, may maybe it's like uh, read James on his own, try to understand him well. Then read James as part of the Catholic epistles, how James connects with First Peter, with Jude, etc. And, and then how might I think about the Catholic epistles and the Pauline epistles as mutual witnesses to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to see the emphasis or to see the vocabulary that uh, each group is using. And another metaphor uh, I, that's helpful for me is I used to sing in the choir when I was in high school. And, you know, uh, a, a beautiful choir is not a group of people singing the same note all the way through the song. It's uh, the basses are singing their line, the tenors their line, the altos and sopranos their line. And it's, uh, they're different notes, but they're in harmony. And even sometimes those notes are in dissonance or they're in tension. But that's what beautiful music is all about, the resolution of that tension. And I think that's a helpful way to think about the canon, that they are human authors singing their own song, but God, the author of the music and the conductor of the song, um, knows the whole. And and it's very helpful to spot the Pauline, you know, melody and maybe the Jamesian, you know, harmony uh, and not to smash them into each other, but to see how they're interrelated. You know, maybe mm -hmm. that illustration goes too far, but that's kind of what a canonical, like reading scripture, understanding canon has those emphases. And, and frankly, Brandon, I just think that's a Christian way of reading. Right. Um, interpreting scripture with scripture. That's kind of a reformation principle of in, interpreting scripture. 
um, canonical uh, uh, kind of interpretation just takes maybe a step further to say the arrangements and associations within the canon are not accidental. Mm. They're doing some hermeneutical work. We could get into the weeds there and talk about, well, there are different orders of the canon and ancient, you know, um, uh, ancient orders of the canon, Septuagint, Greek, you know, version of the Old Testament, Masoretic text, the Hebrew, and, and, that, and that's true. Um, we have to take account those complexities. But generally, those associations kind of obtain, they hold, there's the prophets and there's the writings and there's the gospels and there's Paul and, and those um, those canonical relationships, both large sections, but also canonical relationships within those sections or sub-collections, as it were, are suggestive and they help us read. And that's really what I'm trying to do. In, this book is... Uh, bringing in some insights from other, you know, stuff I've written and research and such. So this book is trying to be very accessible, trying to introduce the seven Catholic epistles, even a small running commentary on each of the letters just to help people follow the flow of thought and see where the authors um, are going in their argument, while at the same time, noting connections between the letters all the way through. So there are these little text boxes all the way through that are trying to help people see, oh, as I'm following James's argument, here's a connection to First Peter mm-hmm. and to Jude um, that actually help me see these thematic concerns um, that did the original author intend that connection? I'm, I'm less answering that question mm-hmm. and more going with this idea we're reading these texts in the New Testament canon, and we're reading these texts in close proximity to each other, James through Jude, right next to each other. And I'm arguing that's a historical thing, not just a modern Bible editing thing. Um, uh, so those themes come to the surface. Now, we could talk about some of those themes, but that's that's kind of the payoff, maybe, yeah. of reading like this. Yeah, I was thinking about when you think about Paul and James, and James has you know a little bit of a, a, a fraught history with uh, the Reformation, although I think you know Luther pretty clearly came out and apologized later for for some of the ways he may have treated James early. But Except James, you know, James- Testament, even though he put it after Revelation. <laughs> but but uh, 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 Jenny McNutt, a uh, church historian at Wheaton, she's pointed out to me over and over again. Look how many times Luther actually quotes James right. and preaches James. You know, yeah. so that that's helpful. Yeah, I think he has a, a preface somewhere where he he has a little bit of a mea culpa there, if I remember right. But um, but that that's an interesting example. I think you know when I think about a very simplistic way of talking about it, you know, if if you're if you're tempted to read Paul as grace is by faith, and that means that you don't have to do anything, and you become an antinomian, which Paul will tell you in Romans six not to do anyway. Yeah. Even if if you get that impression, if you read James, you're not getting that impression anymore, right? James is very 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 clear: faith without works is dead. And that's a way that they sort of mutually enforce. But what, what what would you say if you could give sort of a general answer on how James is using faith and works versus Paul? What would you say is maybe the, the obvious distinction there that we don't see as often as we could? Well, you know, just a couple of broad observations. Um, I think it's helpful to understand that in Galatians and in Romans, uh, Ephesians, Paul is largely addressing uh, groups of Gentiles who are entering the Christian faith for the first time, entering faith the first time. Uh, James very clearly is writing to a group of uh, Jewish Christ followers, you know, those who have had long, long heritage and knowing the Old Testament and knowing the covenant God um, who kind of should know better. And 
there is a very, well, implicit, but I think clear, get to James chapter four, uh, kind of rebuke and call to repentance. You should know. It's almost like Paul is looking at the beginning of the Christian life. James is looking at the end of the Christian life. Paul is saying, look, the only way into the Christian life is faith alone through grace alone. There's, there's no other way to be born into the family. It's not like you bear yourself into the family. Um, faith is kind of like being born. Uh, James is saying, wait, you know, if you've lived your life in the family for this long, you, you really need to start looking like your father. You need to start bearing his image and character. In fact, if you claim to be a part of the family, but live so obviously like, you know, there's, there's no effect living in the family has made upon you, that claim is pretty thin. Um, so that's a general overarching uh, kind of observation. Uh, but notice that Paul uses works, um, works of the law. He's using that phrase. And it's works of the law, works of the Jewish law, self-vindicating works of the law, right? I'm doing the Jewish law uh, in such a way that I'm securing for myself justification. God's pleased with me because I'm actually obeying the law in my power and strength. James uses works in a very different way. He doesn't use the phrase works of the law. He, he qualifies in his letter works as works of charity, love, love of brother and sister, love of neighbor, actually love of the neighbor who is in need, the one who's naked, the poor, the, the vulnerable, right? The widow and the orphan. James is basically saying, look, you know, if you claim to have faith, but you don't have love, uh, that faith isn't born out in the action of, of, of love. Uh, especially toward the vulnerable, that claim is really empty. It's on its own. It's uh, mm -hmm. uh, it's an empty claim. I think Paul agrees in Ephesians too. You know, he's talking about uh, we're saved by uh, grace through faith. Um, but in verse ten, he said we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. Right there, I think. Paul has in mind exactly what James has in mind. Mm -hmm. The good works that God has created his covenant people to do, works of love. And, and in fact, you know, that segues into, I think, one of the major themes throughout the Catholic epistles is their either explicit or implicit reference to Leviticus 19 and the love of neighbor. This central idea, it's completely central to 1 John. It, uh, J uh, Leviticus 19 is James's favorite chapter in the Old Testament. All through chapter 2 of James, he's reflecting on Leviticus 19. Uh, I think there's a implicit reference to Leviticus 19, uh, 18, uh, you know, the verse that talks about loving neighbor uh, in First Peter chapter 1. Uh, so this, this theme is really, really prominent in the Catholic epistles, but it's not absent from Paul. I think very similarly, Paul is uh, thinking about love of, of course, God, but love of neighbor being the quintessential way we uh, demonstrate. And I think that's how James is using righteousness um, uh, as a way of demonstrating righteousness, demonstrating justification, de demonstrating the fact of uh, justification. So th though I don't want to domesticate the, uh, what would you say, the, you know, the, the dissonance, right? You know, the two notes that aren't quite harmony that Paul and James are singing. It's not a destructive dissonance. It's not uh, an off-putting dissonance. Um, because in the grand scheme of the choral arrangement, there's resolution, 
Um, so like what I'm trying to say is I don't want to paper over the differences here. Yeah. But if we're like flying pretty high over the text and I'm saying some kind of overarching things, there's, uh, I think we can see James and Paul uh, in in a creative dissonance and harmonious kind of resolution as they're talking about how the gospel plays itself out, the the teaching of Jesus playing itself out uh, in in the Christian life. I don't know. Does that kind of answer yeah. the question? You yeah, yeah, that's good. Driving in? Um, so let's take a few, maybe let's take a few of the Catholic epistle books and uh, talk about maybe some big issues in them. Uh, so you're working on a commentary on James. Uh, you're working on this word, biblical commentary, the second edition of Bacham, Second Peter and Jude, and, and doing a lot of work there as sort of a, a new co-author. Um, so let's just think of those two, kind of two projects that you've been really uh, deeply in. Uh, start with James. What are some couple of things scholarship-wise in James that you'd say, these are some new uh, shifts in the discourse. These are some really important things we need to talk about. Here's a thing that needs to die that everybody has said that we know is just wrong. Like, what are some of those big things that are going on in the James studies right now that you're finding? I mean, it's going on, but the thing that really needs to die is Debelius's comment that there's no theology in James. I mean, <laughs> I think I think that's you know pretty much on life support. Perhaps has already expired and you know is in the morgue. However, in critical scholarship, I think there's still a, a bit of that. You know that um, that James. Uh, doesn't have a coherent theology, uh, and, I, and I think that that's wrong. Um, but a lot of folks have been moving in that in that direction. Um, a close association with that—that's less just a pronouncement, like there's no theology in James, but more just an enduring question: Is there a structure to James? Um, is it really like the New Testament proverbs, such that you've got these one-off kind of proverbial type sayings? that are in no real particular arrangement, uh, so it's hard to find a flow of thought throughout the, the book. Um, I think there has been very good work on uh, assessing the type of genre that James is, and then, you know, alongside that, assessing its structure. That's always a tough one, like what is the structure of, of the letter? But I, I, I think there is a logic to the text and a structure that flows from it. Um, and I think Richard Bauckham has done a really good job here in his little volume, uh, his Rutledge volume on James, uh, thinking about how the wisdom of Jesus is being processed and communicated by James, obviously the brother of the Lord. Um, interesting, you know, not dependent on an early version of the Gospels, a pre-Mathean kind of, you know, text or something, but just mm -hmm. influenced by his brother Jesus. And he's saying the kind of things that Jesus would say, well, lo and behold, because he lived with Jesus. Uh, but it's uh, the kind of wisdom of wholeness. And so, you know, uh, uh, Doug Moo in some of his work on James has in, uh, emphasized this idea of wholeness. Some other folks have as well. But I, I'm taken with that. I think that's the right direction, that wholeness, teleos, that notion, uh, word teleos that shows up uh, over and over in James, that that's kind of a central idea. Um, what does it mean to be whole before God? Mm -hmm. Have a whole heart, to not doubt, and doubt is kind of described uh, diachronomenos, uh, diachrono, this idea of not doubt, but really vacillation, uh, vacillating between two different options or something. Well, wholeness is to have confident faith in one thing. And that confident faith isn't, hey, look at me, look how strong I am. That confident faith is more, 
there's nothing else for me to turn to. There's almost a desperation that God alone, he is the one God, he is the one covenant God to whom I must give my allegiance because there's actually really no other option. I've come to the end of myself. That's why the poor person, you know, um, uh, is kind of an example for James in a couple of illustrations as one that has full faith. It's uh, 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 a kind of complete and utter trust in God. Again, that's not, hey, look at me, look how strong I am. Look how I've, you know, prayed myself up. I've worshiped to a point where I'm really excited about God. And well, no, I'm just absolutely dependent on him. That's so the, that I think both some scholarly issues that I want to work mm -hmm. through arguing for structure and genre, and then also really trying to press through the theology of James. So I'm excited about that project too. Um, work in that direction. Uh, I realize that you are my editor, and so maybe I shouldn't say <laughs> something like this and admit this to you, but I, I'm really, really interested in early patristic exegesis and kind of how early Christians mm, reflected on the canon, but reflected theologically on these texts. You know, you know I'm going to love that. You know I'm going to be, all, <laughs> okay. I'm gonna be behind good. that. So. Good. I'm glad that – I hope I can uh, then make good on this. Nobody's <laughs> done that with James and probably yeah. for good reason because folks thinks there, think there is no theology there. But I'm fascinated with asking those kinds of questions. How might we reflect – You know, not, not forcing theological categories in, anachronistically upon the text, but, but to see, especially canonically – how a text like James in his own vocabulary uh, reflects on the reality of God. Dare I say, you know, some of those ontological realities of, about the one God who has broken into this time-space continuum and has rescued his people and, 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 and how James in his very Jewish kind of vocabulary uh, reflects on that. So anyway, that's a little less processed in my mind, but I, I'd, I'd like to attempt that. Yeah, well, like you said earlier, I love theological retrieval. So if you just turn it into one big theological retrieval commentary, you're not going to have any problems with me. So, Well, I'm pretty sure we're going to find that James was a paedobaptist. Um, <laughs> and he believed in the plurality of elders. Uh, mm. And so you might... You might need to follow me. Yeah, I'll figure it out. We'll, we'll take care of it. I'm not worried about that. <laughs> uh, okay, the other one uh, I mentioned that you're working on, Second Peter and Jude. Um, huge project. I mean, you know, you're... Uh, you're not. I know that we, you and I have talked plenty enough to know that you're not at a loss for realizing the, the the task of working on a second edition of Bauckham's Second Peter and Jude, one of the most influential uh, commentaries on on the on the book. So uh, maybe give just a, a really interesting to think through stepping into a commentary with a living author. Still, it's not like you get to just say what you want because the guy can't, uh, you know, give you a rebuttal. He's still alive. He's still, he's still working. So what is it like just to sort of step in there and say, I'm going to do the second edition. I'm going to be a co-author, but I really can't. I'm guessing you really can't do too much editing on it. So what has that process been like and what does it look like to kind of step into something like that? Yeah, well, great question. My anxiety level has now risen because of how you said <laughs> that. Um, my greatest – well, number one, it's just a huge honor. Um, and he's your doctor of author too. So, I mean, it's, you know, it's yeah, extra I'm, level. So, uh, Ron Piper was my supervisor there at St. Andrews. And, uh, oh, I thought Bachman was. Well, I was wrong really, about that. Yeah, really helpful. R Richard was my internal examiner. And oh, okay. he also supervised my Imlet uh, that yeah. I did at St. Andrews. So, very, very influenced by – 
by Richard's work, of course. And it's a huge honor to get to work on it um, and to at least update it for a new generation of readers because I think it is, again, still pound for pound the best commentary into Peter Jude. Um, and it's you know over 30 years old. And so updating it with recent scholarship is the minimum goal here. I've uh, joked over and over again, my greatest... Uh, my greatest uh, kind of aim is to just not screw it up. <laughs> uh, but I'm I'm excited, though, and confident that there are areas that I can contribute, not just, you know, updating the scholarship, but also pressing forward some of his arguments. So I'm really partial to how he structured both of those texts. So to get into the weeds, uh, Richard understands Jude is very influenced by Pesher Habakkuk uh, from uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls from Qumran and uh, is kind of structured, especially verses uh, 5 through 19, structured along the lines of kind of a Pesher, uh, Pesher Midrash. I think that's really insightful. There has been some pushback to that, uh, but, it, but I, think, I think Richard's structure and understanding of Jude there has been very helpful. Uh, second Peter, I think uh, the structure again that G, uh, that Richard has seen to the text, uh, looking at kind of uh, the author responding to these false teachers' claims uh, one by one mm -hmm. is is really a helpful way to understand the text. And so uh, happy to move the ball forward on both of those kinds of insights. Uh, for Second Peter, the the one that's very obvious, I'm just going to talk about it because I know you're going to ask me about it. Is the issue <laughs> of authorship in Second Peter? Yeah. Uh, Richard's uh, commentary. He wasn't the first to come up with the the uh, understanding that Second Peter is testamentary genre, uh, which characteristically was not written by the purported author, and therefore Richard argues that on one hand Peter did not write. Second Peter, which a lot of scholarship, I'd say the vast majority of especially critical scholarship argues that Peter did not write Second Peter. Uh, and Richard agrees with that. Um, but because of the issue of testamentary genre, Richard argues that Second Peter is a thinly veiled fiction or the authorship, Petrine authorship of Second Peter is a thinly veiled fiction. In other words, the original readers would pick up Second Peter, read it, immediately recognized by the genre that it's a testamentary kind of genre, uh, even though cast in the form of a letter, uh, and then read it as such and not be uh, not be led astray into thinking that Peter is the real author. Uh, so therefore, Bauckham can then argue uh, that Second Peter is not written by Peter, but it's not deceptive. And so it still is canonical. It's still you know, part of Christian scripture, it's not being deceptive or something like that. That's a, that's a really influential argument for a lot of folks. And so, so yeah, I need to steward that argument um, because it's hardwired to how he interprets second Peter as well. Um, I myself, right. um, I mean, this is a critically, historically, this is just a really, really tough question. Um, I don't want to quite say that I'm agnostic about the authorship of second Peter. I'm not quite agnostic. Um, I I, I kind of think that Jerome probably had it right that whereas First Peter had a secretary, Sylvanus, right? Um, mm -hmm. Though we don't know for sure that Second Peter also was written by a secretary, it seems likely to me that Peter had a secretary. You know, the tradition is Peter stands behind the material in Mark, and John Mark is the author of that text. So it, it stands to reason that Peter never 
never knew Greek well enough actually to compose perhaps. And so he has help in all of the texts that he stands behind. And then and Jerome just argues that there are probably two scribes or amanuenses uh, that are responsible for the two texts. Now, the pushback is, well, you know, how could those two letters being so different both be connected to Peter? Mm-hmm. Even if Peter is telling the scribe, hey, you can go off, compose this letter, bring it back to me. I'll check through it and then endorse it with my, you know, my signature, as it were. Um, yeah, that th- th- there are concerns there. Probably the biggest concern there, and Bauckham brings this up, is that first Peter is so dependent on the Old Testament. He's quoting the Old Testament again and again, and the Old Testament is obviously the foundational authority for his argument. Second Peter, um, many have argued, Richard, one of them, uh, that second Peter doesn't rely on the Old Testament as much or in the same way. Not a lot of direct quotations from the Old Testament and, and not used in the same kind of way. I have a bit of a hunch that Second Peter is more influenced by the Old Testament than it's given credit. So mm-hmm. that's something I'd like to try to, to push forward. I know a couple of others have you know, suggested that to me, that Second uh, Peter probably is more reliant on the Old Testament than has been appreciated. So anyway, that's a that's a, a way of navigating how how do I uh, update and revise this mm-hmm. excellent classic commentary you know, for a new generation, you know, to enjoy and benefit from. Adding my own voice in some ways, but in in a lot of ways, uh, preserving and kind of serving, uh, serving you know Bachem in the in the sense of you know, updating and, and putting forward his ideas. So, yeah, so you're not, you're not coming in, you're not coming in to, to, this is actually my commentary. Please move over. It's a <laughs> yeah, no. stewardship issue. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no one would read it then. I mean, so, <laughs> uh, that, that would be kind of counterproductive, yeah. but it's been a fun project and I've been learning a, a lot. And, um, so that's kind of how I'm thinking of it. It's, it's an update with some revisions, uh, additions, um, but I, I, I'm confident that it's going to continue to be um, a really, really helpful commentary, and even more so because it's you know conversant with what's been happening in scholarship the last thirty years, and yeah. and responding to especially some pushback and some alternative ideas uh, that have been put forward by the text. So, yeah, hopefully that's successful. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you to follow up on the authorship. Like you said, I wanted to ask about it, and you brought it up, and now we'll we'll talk about it more. Um, so you, you say it's testamental, you know, and that that makes sense, sort of. Even if you just think of the fact that Peter may not have written any any of it by hand, right? Um, but it does say Simon Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, at the beginning, and then goes on. So how do you how do you work through that? It's not being deceptive, but it says Peter wrote. Is it just the the, the original audience understood that he didn't write it himself, or how would you work through that? Yeah, in uh, short, what you just said is right. So it, it's very interesting that first verse of Second Peter, it's uh, in some manuscripts, it's Simeon Peter. And so there's even, you know, mm. some classical or older uh, commentaries argue, well, you know, that's the uh, that's the um, that's the Aramaic kind of spelling of the name. And maybe that's all the more authenticity there uh, with Simeon. Peter, it's uh, one of the few times in the New Testament that he's referred to with that spelling of his name. Uh, but the argument, if Second Peter is testamentary genre, so the hallmark qualities of testamentary genre is that the author is explaining a moment of his imminent death. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 15 describes Peter is aware of his imminent death um, at, on the 
you know, famous person, in this case, Peter, uh, uh, at his death, he's on his deathbed, he's surrounded by his followers, you know, this is kind of like the end of Genesis where Jacob and his sons are around him and he's giving this kind of prophetic blessing to each of the sons around him. Uh, again, First Peter, uh, sorry, Second Peter chapter 1, verses uh, 12 through 15, here Peter is not speaking directly to his followers, uh, but he's writing this letter as kind of a prophetic last will and testament to um, predict what's going to happen in the future. Um, that's the fictive, if we can call it that, that's the fictive setting. Now, an author after the time of Peter, Peter has died, but someone who knew Peter well or knew his teaching well is actually writing uh, in a later situation, knowing that false teaching has arisen Peter is gone, but we need his teaching, his apostolic teaching to address these situations. So the author then is uh, writing in Peter's vein of thinking and, you know, his vein of apostolic theology uh, to address these issues. Uh, but the text now of 2 Peter is cast in this testamentary type genre. Anybody who's reading it knows, oh yeah, okay, this is someone later writing, but writing in the name of Peter, that's a that's a thinly veiled fiction, right? It's a, uh, it's not deceptive because the original author would, uh, sorry, the original reader would be able to detect that pretty clearly. And you know, Richard uh, points out that in Second Peter chapter two and Second Peter chapter three, the beginning of each um, shifts from the future. Um, so false teachers will appear, scoffers will come. Shifts from the future to the present, and that's a telltale sign of testamentary genre having the, you know, from Peter's perspective, future issue coming up, but from the perspective of who's writing, well, that's actually what's happening right now. Um, so those are some textual clues that make the argument plausible. Uh, now, lots of folks have pushed back on those, you know, bits of evidence, um, arguing that it's not likely to be testamentary literature, but that that's kind of how it um, how his argument plays out. And again, not deceptive then because the text is not uh, in the end overtly arguing uh, for Petrine authorship. That's a thinly veiled fiction as it were. Now, now the, the, the big question is if that is how the very first readers of the text understood the text, why did that perspective fall out almost immediately in the history of reception of the text? Right. Um, because we actually don't have, to my knowledge, um, ancient, uh, a ancient kind of sources making that argument for Second Peter. In fact, we kind of have something of the opposite, or at least mm -hmm. we have an early concern about Second Peter, um, about its authenticity, uh, etc. It obviously ended up in the canon mm -hmm. and was uh, received as authoritative and genuine. But it, you know, there was ancient, ancient questions. You know, ancient uh, sources, early fathers had questions about the text. So yeah, that's a complicating factor for, for Richard's argument. Yeah. You have origin in the third, you know, third century saying some people dispute this. He seems to be fine with it, but he's like, some people dispute this that's right. and then eventually it gets there. But um, yeah, yeah, but the problem is too, you know, it's, it's, we do forget, I think the amount of access we have to patristic literature and, and even apostolic father literature is actually very minimal compared to probably how much was written, how much correspondence was happening. We can't go in a time machine and walk around with them, you know. So it's the lack of evidence is not is not necessarily a a 
um, yeah, a proof, smoking, proof of anything. Yeah. yeah, It's not a smoking gun indicator that this is an inauthentic text and that it mm -hmm. was rejected or something like that. And a complicating factor, especially in the apostolic fathers, when those texts do make reference to biblical texts, often it's not with a citation, a clear yeah. citation. Like, you know, Peter said, uh, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, the pastor expects the audience to be really, really, really aware of uh, the, the, you know, the biblical literature. And so you just mm -hmm. quote the text and everybody thinks, oh yeah, I know where that came from. Yeah. So it just is a complicating factor for a later historian to think, well, is, is the apostolic father actually really referring to Psycho Peter at this point? Hard yeah. to tell. I, you know, thinking through this issue, at least in the classroom, I think it's really helpful for us to think carefully about the historical particularities and the difficulty here. And not be afraid of that, not shy away from, hey, this is a really difficult historical question to answer, not least because we don't have a ton of evidence, right? This, you know, especially second century, we we just, manuscripts, uh, it's, especially for Second Peter, uh, it's, it's a hard question to answer. And I don't think we should shy away from how hard that question is to answer historically. From a Christian perspective, though, um, I... I can still have confidence in the canon of Scripture, not based solely upon my historical ability to recreate that canon, but, and I don't want to sound overly, you know, fetistic or something, but 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 because I've received this canon from the church, and and yeah. this, this is the text of Christian Scripture, um, I would want to say warts and all, and I say that not because I have a low view of Scripture, but just it's a complicated text. Mm -hmm. And I think we are always supposed to wrestle with this text in its canonical particularity. And it should we should never kind of come to a point where we think, oh yeah, I've got it down cold. I figured it out. I think that's the moment where we cease to be amazed by scripture, cease to be grabbed by it and challenged by it and and even like beat up by it in in some mm -hmm. ways. I, I just I I think um, the, those who have read scripture and I've learned so much from are, are those who kind of have that perspective that come back to the particularity again and again and are willing to wrestle with it and let it you know, push us around and challenge our assumptions while at the same time not having this acidic kind of skepticism, you know, toward the text. So anyway, yeah. holding those things in tension for students, I think has been challenging, but helpful. And I, I hold that tension in my own head. As well. Yeah. I think that's a good thing to end on this little, little encouraging mini sermon there. So, so I think we'll end on there. So Darren, thanks so much uh, for hopping on. It's good talking to you. Good to have an excuse to see you. Yeah, indeed. Love to be here and uh, go Jayhawks. <laughs>